1: What I am saying is that it's possible to express heretical ideas as Christians, that is denial of Christ's identity and lordship, not just in the ecclesiastical sphere, but outside of that, and that society itself is not a democracy, Um, it's made up of various spheres of authority.
0: Buddy, Michael Teeson here, and today I get to speak with an old friend and colleague, Doctor Joseph Boot, and we're going to be talking about the importance of God's revelation and God's law in order to form government. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the show. Cheers, brother. Uh, I don't know what time it is there, but it's just afternoon, so I can have a beverage with you. Uh, How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm having a a small glass of sherry because it's um, five o'clock, just gone five o'clock in the evening for me. So I'm allowed.
0: That's fantastic. Absolutely. Um, You and I have been uh, working together with the Ezra Institute. Uh, You're of course the president and founder. Some of the things that you guys have been talking about over on your podcast have to do with God's moral law um, uh, Ryan graciously invited me to come on the show and talk about the third commandment. I was, was happy to do that with him. Um, I want to kind of extend that conversation today, Joe, and just for your framing of the conversation, I, uh, Tim and I are, are shooting a podcast soon and it's going to be about, you know, the value of nations and this ongoing conversation, uh, you know, globalism versus nationalism and a a foundational conversation towards that conversation is the work that you've done in your book for government. And, uh, you also, your new book, uh, ruler of Kings. And so one of the things I appreciate about these works is how you get to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is trying to get towards a Christian view of authority. So here we are. It seems like we're at a time in culture and history where we are at like an emperor has no clothes moment. Uh, I, I want to read an ipsert from uh, Rush Dooney on the limits of uh, reason. And, and this is what he reads. He says, he says this, According to an old tale, certain clever philosophers approached an emperor offering to weave for him a rare and costly garment, which would have the marvelous capacity of making known to him the fools and the knaves of his realm. Because of the magical quality of the threads, the garment would be invisible to all but the wise and the pure of heart. Delighted, the emperor commissioned the weaving of the royal robes at a great cost, only to find out, to his dismay, That he himself obviously was a fool and a knave, for he saw nothing in the looms. And and it seems like we're at a time where where the progressive left, I just got a text this morning, Joe, from people who are following American politics and Canadian politics, who say, "I, I I think people are starting to see this. And it seems like we're at a moment in time where The emperor has no clothes. And one of the things you've done in the book in in making that kind of statement is a criticism of liberal democracy. So can you kind of start up for our listeners and help them understand the heresy of liberal democracy and, and, and why it leads to a nothingness that we're currently observing as the left just continues to trample down a road of insanity? Mm
1: hmm. Yes, when you put it like that, uh, as you say, I in my most recent book, Ruler of Kings, I do deal with this question of the nature of authority and the character of a, of, of a Christian vision of government. And it does seem a little bit provocative to talk about the heresy of, of, of liberal democracy um, in, the, in, the, in the popular moment. And of course I am, deliberately being provocative there in framing it that way because heresy when we christians talk about heresy we tend to think about it only in an ecclesiastical context so we think about the church uh, the institutional church and the way in which false teaching can express itself in the church and how then church leadership is to deal with the, the the issue of heresy? Now, and typically, heresy is that which departs from the orthodox creeds of the church, uh, which of course are grounded in the Bible. The creeds are not uh, a distinct or separate notion of authority from the bible they are a summary of the most fundamental and critical teaching of the bible so we call them the ecumenical creeds because they are the thing which unites uh, true christians Um, we may have our different emphases and our subsequent confessions and so forth but we talk about the ecumenical creeds because they unite orthodox christianity in the sense of true christianity now a heretic is one who chooses for himself that's literally what the word means. So the heretic was one who seeks to establish their own authority outside the authority of of God and the authority of the, the creeds. Now, um, the creeds affirm the absolute authority of God. Uh, they affirm that Christ is Lord and Redeemer uh, and Judge. So one of the things that the creeds fundamentally lay out for us is the absolute supremacy of christ and that's one of the reasons why the earliest confession of a new believer in the life of the church when they were going to be baptized was jesus christ is lord and that was a costly confession because in the life of the early church that may have cost you your life it would certainly have likely cost you ostracism from community family and so on may well have cost you your life jesus christ is lord that's part of the creedal confession of the church now as christians we tend to only think about the implications of heresy as expressing themselves in the ecclesiastical environment that is within the institution of the church what i say and explain in ruler of kings though is that the concept of heresy as choosing for oneself rather than accepting the Lordship of Jesus Christ as confessed, doesn't just express itself in the institutional church. It can express itself in the life of the family. It can express itself in cultural and political life. So that a Christian, we have this ironic situation where where a Christian um, may be regarded as orthodox in the life of their local church because they say Jesus is Lord and they seem to go along with the teaching of the church but if they're also a politician and they 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 exist as a, as um or 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 they're part of the uh, juridical sphere and they they have a job as a magistrate or as a judge but they don't recognize the lordship of Christ in politics or they don't recognize the lordship of Christ in their thinking about law or they we don't recognize the lordship of Christ in our vocations then we're actually uh, expressing outside of the institutional sphere of the church heresy we 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 are we are denying the lordship of jesus christ so you can deny the lordship of christ in the church but you can also deny it outside of the institutional life of the church that doesn't make it any less heretical so that's the first point that i make the 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 second point where i then try and connect these two terms heresy and democracy is that um, the, the, the way in which the modern, the, the contemporary politics understands democracy is not the way we historically understood it in the West. So in the uh, democracy, strictly speaking, um, is concerns the way we appoint in the Western tradition, uh, political leaders. We do it through a vote. So in other words, we believe in the right of the governed to participate in their own government. We, we have a shared obligation and we, we select our leaders, not through the point of the sword, hopefully not through manipulation from China, um, but we select our leaders through the ballot box through as responsible citizens electing those who would represent us in the house that's originally what democracy meant today though we talk about a democratic society but a a democratic but society itself is much more than civil government and society as a whole is not democratic your family is not a democracy the children don't vote on what the rules of the house will be or what they're gonna eat for dinner uh parental authority is the reality in the home the church is not a democracy we don't vote on which parts of the creeds we're going to take seriously or within our own traditions for example in the reform tradition you know which elements of the three forms of unity we'll decide we'll dispense with we we'd so th- it's not society which is much more than civil government doesn't function as a democracy your vocation isn't democracy if you're a if you're a um in working for a corporation or a business you don't get to vote on what your salary is going to be or your job description so society is not democratic we the society is actually involves all kinds of spheres and structures and hierarchies that are there for our good and our protection and our well-being but we elect our leaders that way so the, when I talk about the heresy of liberal democracy, I'm not saying we should wind back the clock to the medieval period and undo the hard won um, democratic institutions that a Christian world and life view gave to us to participate in our own government. What I am saying is that it's possible to express heretical ideas as Christians, that is denial of Christ's identity and lordship, not just in the ecclesiastical sphere, But outside of that, and that society itself is not a democracy, Um, it's made up of various spheres of authority. And democracy specifically concerns how we elect our leaders. But we would deny the cry of the French Revolution, which we'll come on to in a moment when we talk about liberal democracy. But we would deny that the the refrain, Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God, because the mob, the 51 percent, if 51 percent of people in in Canada say euthanasia is right, let's kill the elderly. That doesn't make it moral. That doesn't make it right. Um, That would just be ruled by the mob. So we don't say that the people's voice is the voice of God. Christians have never accepted that. We recognize that the voice of God is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. The, the, the prefix liberal in front of democracy is perhaps the next part of the discussion.
0: Our federal government's response to economic difficulties is to print money until it's worthless, driving up the cost of everything, essentially stealing from your hard-earned pay. What you need is to take control of your own resources and to be responsible for your own money, which is your responsibility. Bull Bitcoin wants to help you do just that. Bull Bitcoin is a 100% self-funded, freedom-minded Canadian Bitcoin exchange that wants to protect your financial freedom and help you protect your resources. If you're at all aware of what's going on in our country you should seriously consider connecting with my friends over at Bull Bitcoin and buying at least some Bitcoin today. Sign up at mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC and have all of your questions answered. That's mission.bullbitcoin.com backslash LCC. Thanks everyone for supporting them. Okay, so this is really important stuff and I wanna kind of go back and recap slash also just agree with some supporting text to what you've just said. So so first of all, everybody, what you need to realize, what Joe has established in his, in his book and um, what is a really important link in this chain uh, is something that you've heard us both say time and time again. And that is humans always have to point back to a greater authority than themselves. So Joe, I really appreciated how in the book, this conversation about government begins back with the simple, the, 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 the simple statement, it is either God's revelation, it is God's authority, or it is somehow um, a promotion of a, a group of men, or one man's authority. And it's so, so you know, uh, we have statements from some of these great Christian thinkers like Rush Dooney that say, "Look, it, it's either man's authority or it's God's authority." There, there. So you go back to paganism, you you uh, you go back to the Enlightenment, and in in simple terms, it is people always. Choosing an authority above them, they all they always have to have a rep- reference point. And so, Joe, I, I want you to jump in on that in in the next context of this liberal democracy, because basically in your book, you have a great summary of basically who who has been chosen by the liberal democrats to be their authority. So we'll get to that in a second. But number two, you know, Joe, when you were when you're talking about this heresy as expressing itself and how the church tends to think of that as, you know, theology proper, or as within the life of the church. You know, even in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is talking about how you deal with uh, someone who has committed sin against you. So we're not even talking necessarily about an inaccurate teaching. We're just talking about someone who stole from you and hasn't apologized, or lied about you, or... uh, committed adultery by looking at your wife or something like this. Even in that text, this idea of heresy being something where you're choosing for yourself, you're you're choosing your own way rather than God's way. That's why Jesus says if he he refuses to listen to them, so now you, you privately, then to the church, Uh, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. He's, by his actions, he's choosing his own way. And he is declaring himself a heretic to the Lord, which means he is no longer to be a representative of the Lord. Like he's outcast in that way. Um, Thirdly, when you're talking about this idea of Liberal democracy not being now what it wasn't. One of the things I really appreciated in your book was the idea that even when we are arguing for this democratic election, you know, representative government, the understanding historically was always that that representative government and the people who who um, the people who voted that government in. You use two words that are really important, and I want you then to just jump in off of this, and that is is that they were a, an acknowledged or a formally recognized group, meaning that they, that they would take these texts and they would recognize you use primary knowledge, like that, that which we can understand normatively without being an expert, and you re- reference secondary forms of knowledge like scientific discovery and maybe more of a... Uh, of an in-depth study of something. But both of those things would be subject to this acknowledgement of basic truths, this, this uh, recognition of the authority of God, even as you seek to find representatives of your viewpoint. So can you kind of differentiate now and and go back between this acknowledgement of God versus this acknowledgement of this body of work of men when we're talking about liberal democracy and and what would you call the alternative uh, outside of a representative government? Would you call it like a, a God recognizing representative government? I'm I'm trying to see where you might come up with a neat intellectual way of of uh, encapsulating this idea of acknowledgement.
1: Well, uh, you, you you mentioned the. Um the nature and, and character of representative government, even in the way government, civil government functions. When, when we elect a representative, uh, we, are, we are electing a representative. We don't have a referendum on every policy. So you don't have the concept of radical democracy, of a radical leveling, um, simply isn't present in the the, the Western uh, Christian tradition. Um, of course, you know we we talk about universal suffrage today, and and of course it was gradual; it was a steady process of more and more people getting the vote. Originally, it was people who held land and so on. I do think we've gone too far now. We give people in prison the vote, um, and so we need to be careful uh, about who is responsible. Uh, to elect representatives, but those representatives aren't coming back to the people all the time, saying, "Well, you know, uh, let's ta- let's have a referendum on every piece of um, uh, legislation." So the, the 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 way the radical liberals, the 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 the, the, the liberal democratic um, vision that emerged from the French Revolution. Uh, resented anything that was hierarchical or aristocratic i mean the family and the church are seen today as hopelessly aristocratic institutions because they are hierarchical you know that you the insult term today is the patriarchy um that if you recognize fathers as heads of homes or 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 bishops and pastors and presbyters elders as heads of churches this is this is the toxic patriarchy because it goes against the radical leveling of the liberal in liberal democracy. So the Christian view is that Christ is sovereign Lord and King. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1, 5. He is the one who rules the nations with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. He's, he is the one who is seated at the right hand of total power and authority. All authority in heaven and earth, Jesus says, belongs to me. Now, as a people embrace the gospel, and come to faith in Christ. When you look at the history of Christendom, they, uh, as a society, not just individually, look at ways to ensure that, as a, as families and as communities, as villages and towns, as territories, how do we recognise uh, and institutionalise the reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? So. In the pagan world, it was basically dictators. The, 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 the pharaoh or the emperor or the, the king was an absolute ruler, a tyrant, uh, somebody who ruled with arbitrary power. There was no such thing as the rule of law because the, 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 the law was the word of the king. So the law of the Medes and the Persians uh, in the Old Testament, the, the law of Darius you know, the how it's how Daniel is entrapped, right? In the lion's den. Well, look, but the king, you said, and he wasn't able to go back on his word because his word was irrevocable. Now that was the arbitrary power of paganism, of the pagan concept of government. You can see how we're moving back in that pagan direction. So as that um, uh, mentality uh, persisted in paganism, And then as Christianity emerged, you had the birth of the first truly free institution in history, the Christian church, that asserted its independence from the state. In fact, it not only said that Jesus Christ is Lord in his church and will not be, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. It said that actually that Christ is Lord over Caesar, even in uh, civil government. And um, that all authority, was something that came from God and owed its own allegiance to God, which, of course, is the teaching of Paul in Romans 13, that it's God's deacon. So the way that um, the the West thought about this issue of authority was that all authority comes from God. Freedom begins to emerge with the assertion, with with the arrival of the church in history. And that reality of freedom under Christ begins to spread out into society and we move past a feudal system where law is private so basically michael if if we we were both in ontario and you were in i don't know the kitchen of waterloo area and i'm in the jordan grimsby area and you were the baron over that area you would have your own private law there and i would have my own private law where i am now The idea of a a Christian state or a Christian republic, in that sense, monarchies are also republics, simply meant that the law is now a public thing. It's not a private thing. You can't have random arbitrary laws happening over here and other arbitrary laws happening here, Dane law up there and Anglo law here. Law, the rule of law meant, drawn from the principle of scripture, it's one law for for the resident and the alien. So it was the reign of Christ and the rule of law. And in in the history of the Christian tradition in the West, that was the rule of God's law, going right back to Alfred the Great. But with the French Revolution uh, came an anti-Christian movement that was the embodiment of the rationalism of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a humanistic political movement, a humanistic, I should say, philosophic movement um, that uh, named itself by the way, as the Enlightenment, and then named the Dark Ages, the Christian era. And the political expression of the Enlightenment was the French Revolution. Liberty, fraternity, equality. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, and what emerged from his so-called social contract was the attempt to destroy a Christian conservative view of political life and have a pagan totalitarian view of politics and his view of political life was totalitarian because the state was the absolute concept of authority. It was the totalizing principle that was to rule and reign over every area of life. So as you said, the choices between the authority of Christ and the rule of law, one rule for the stranger and the alien, so there can be true justice and equality before God or it's the liberty, fraternity, and equality within a social contract that can be updated at will depending on who's in power. And where I surrender my freedom and liberty to the general will, and this is increasingly what we're moving back towards in progressivism, is that political elites, as we surrender the authority of Christ as a transcendent authority, say, well, the only true authority, the only true source of law is the political establishment. And increasingly, they are interested in listening to their own people less and less. And as it tries to undermine these mediating institutions like the family and the church and charities and the vocations and swallow them all in this parts to whole relationship, you start to see the creep of both authoritarianism and the totalitarian view of political life.
0: Joe, this has so much application Immediately, just there at the very end, you can feel the difference between what we historically have done and should be doing, and that is being a God-fearing, God-acknowledging people who then, for the sake of having a government to whom uh, – we empower in order to punish evil and promote righteousness. We uh, we we actually go out and we find candidates that that represent us, versus this other idea of the. It's almost like a complete facade where if you're going out to elect somebody to vote for somebody who is supposed to represent you. But both you and that individual know that there's no actual desire for representation and just to move towards this uh, this elite group. Now, we throw that word around a lot, but what I, but I would just want to read a paragraph from your book that just helps people understand this. Um, you go and talk about the Jewish philosopher and political theorist um, Yoram Hazo- Hazomi. And you quote him and you say this, this is his quote. This is not your quote. This is his quote to an enlightenment political tradition descended from the principal political texts. So for the last three years, since we've gotten more involved with politics, I've gone to your average politician and said, well, what's your authority? Which text are you quoting right now? To whom are you pointing to? Like I've had direct conversations with Maxime Bernier about that. This is great. You're talking about all this type of stuff. Where are you getting that from? Jordan Peterson you know you you know you're're you're, you're making biblical extrapolations from the mating habits of lobsters where is your text and this is what he points to of rationalist political philosophers such as Hobbes Locke uh, Spinoza Rousseau and Kant and reprised in countless recent works of academic political theory elaborating on these views. So you have God's word, or you have the word of this very favored few, plus, just in case you don't like those favored few, the volumes upon volumes of their disciples. And Joe, you, you've articulated the, um, something here that I want you to jump in on, and that is that the these texts promote an ultimate um, freedom or, um, uh, uh self autonomy of the individual as the ultimate goal. And I think this is the confusion for many people where they would say, well, don't we Christians think that everybody has to be free? And of course, like I, I run an organization called Liberty Coalition in Canada. Um, we believe in liberty help our viewers understand what they really mean by the phrase perfectly free and perfectly equal. Because it's not really a true freedom. It's a substitute, but it's it's a real definition offered, but it's a competing definition to that which what scripture would say freedom is. So Expound on those two ideas, and then we're going to move on to maybe some application points as we're talking about voting and lawmaking.
1: Well, the word freedom isn't self-explanatory. Freedom from what to be what? That's the question. Freedom presupposes being liberated, liberty coalition. You know, being liberated from something to be something. And so this question takes us back again to the question of authority. You've pointed out that the difficulty is once we deny transcendent authority in God, in Christ, who is there that can criticize or hold accountable human government? What authority, by what standard would we say that any particular law or any particular ruling or any particular action in the public space of government is right or wrong, true or false? In the absence of the transcendent God in Christ, man becomes the God, in particular collective man, uh, represented in an elite that claims to speak for the collective, and so This is the the fundamental question that confronts us. In the Christian view of government, human beings occupy an office, right? There is a calling to an office. You are a civil servant. You are a minister. You might even be the prime minister. Why did we adopt that language of minister and ministry, a ministry of corrections? Because it was all about service to God. That you occupy an office under God. And that's what gives you your authority. That you do not have authority unless you are under authority. And because ultimate authority resides with the Lord Jesus Christ, then outside of his authority, you're dealing only with tyranny. So. At the fundamental level, the question becomes, when we talk about freedom as Christians, because we do believe in freedom, freedom from what to be what? We believe in freedom under God. The notion of absolute freedom is a myth uh, because we are um, coerced in all kinds of areas of our lives. Um, At the most fundamental level, I'm not free to go and be uh, 15 again. I'm not free to be in two places at once. I'm not free to um, uh, redefine my existence. Um, I'm not uh, free to choose my own parents. I'm not free to choose my own ethnicity. I'm not free to choose the time in which I was born. We are creatures. So we only have the freedom of a creature, and that is the freedom to live in terms of God's order. Now, when we rebel against God's norms and order, we begin to destroy ourselves. It's self-destructive. So that's why Jesus said, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Or as the King James puts it, you will be free indeed. True freedom is found in Christ and under uh, his lordship. And outside of that, you're only dealing with the tyranny, with the rule, with the law of man, with the authority of man. Uh, man enlarged the uh, the collective. So the, the the radical principle of freedom that emerged from the French Revolution. Now we have to say that we're, we're not denying, and I would not deny, that what was going on in France under the abuses of uh, a um, a. An immoral and increasingly unjust aristocracy wouldn't be praised by Christians either, um, as my book *Ruler of Kings* articulates. We believe in the principle of sphere sovereignty, the 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 the, um, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the importance of God's word. Those weren't things that were being emphasised in um, in France, but the radicalism of the French Revolution, with its idea of liberty, um, as you pointed out is summed up in this sort of rationalistic perspective, which says that we have the availability and the total sufficiency of human reason. We don't need God. So in Notre Dame, the goddess of reason at the French Revolution was enthroned uh, as a God, as an object of worship. So we don't need God There is an absolute sufficiency to the idea of human understanding alone. Man's unaided reason without revelation, without Christ, without God, without his word. Secondly, in in light of man's independent reason, man is perfectly free in the sense that um, he is uh, utterly independent. He's autonomous. So he can be a law unto himself. And he is totally equal. So we're going to start denying distinctions and hierarchies um, that exist by the ordering of God within society. For example, um, parental authority, church authority, vocational authority. Remember when we look at even our political institutions in the in the West, we have several houses. And if you look at the mother of all parliaments, the mother of the free in England, there was the House of Commons that represented the ordinary people, but there was also the House of Lords that was a balance to that. It was a counterweight to mob rule. Uh, And and in the Lords, these were people of status, very often employers, people who um, often held large amounts of land. And there were um, bishops also from the church that would sit in the House of Lords. There was a counterweight. There was a recognition that the problem of sin means that you cannot trust a human being with total autonomy, to be a law unto themselves, to be their own source of authority. And so we devolved power. We had divisions of power. We limited the king. So that was the Puritan the evangelical revolution was about limiting the the notion of the divine right of a king to be a a law unto himself and to be arbitrary. But steadily we've pushed it to the point now where this rationalistic view of human freedom is that radical equality that we can't distinguish in the end now between truth and falsehood, between um, right behavior and wrong behavior, between justice and injustice, between a superior and an inferior culture, between true religion and false religion. We must declare everything a grand leveling within society. Everything must be leveled and turned into a zero. And that's connected to the third point, which is then that our obligations then, if we are autonomous, as you said, which means a law to oneself, we're, we're radically free. We're free from God. We're not bound by God or his word or his law. We're not ob- obligated to our own history. It's, the, today is not a covenant with the past and with the future. If that's the case, then the only obligation that we have arises from our own choices. They might be individual choices or they might be collective choices, as, as a collective, as a social contract that we contract together to say we're updating our choices. And so you see how the cultural life and political life is then completely evacuated of any authority or concept of freedom that transcends what the state says. Uh, in a in liberal democracy, and of course, anarchy um, has never been a workable political view of reality, which is precisely why the existentialists, Michael, even like Sartre, ended up p- professing communi- sympathy with com- uh, communism and socialism, Marxism, because anarchy, just to say, well, every individual can do whatever they like, doesn't work politically. So what happens is as individualism is stressed more and more, and you get more and more chaos within society, the state has to assert itself more and more to try and hold together this radical autonomy in some kind of uh, political unity. And so you have a false view of freedom that's propagated uh, in the name of liberty.
0: Hey friends, I'm happy to talk to you again about Rocklink Investment Partners. With inflation at 40 year highs and economic stagflation on the horizon, Growing and preserving your hard-earned capital is of utmost importance. I know it's on my mind. And that's why Rocklink investment partners are so essential, because they understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high-quality businesses anchored to the time-tested principles of value investing And they do not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the World Economics Forum's definition of ESG. So email rocklink at info at rocklink.com. That's rocklink with a C. Or visit them at www.rocklink.com. And again, that's link with a C. While you were using some of those abstract examples of I'm not free to be in two places at once. I'm not free to redefine my existence. You know, I was thinking about, you know, in, in man's world, where again, we, we subject ourselves to man's authority, and m- men are, are, are not subject to God's authority. I, I'm not free to dig a hole. In my backyard, without going and getting a permit, I'm not free to go to church uh, when the state uh, wants to sell a vaccine. I- I'm not free to uh, declare that men with penises are men and women with vaginas are are women. Like it's it's, it's it goes so far. And what people are not understanding it is the simple rejection of the lordship of Christ and the goodness and the sufficiency of his scripture that leads us into this absurdo world. But here's where I kind of want to turn the podcast around Joe because this is where I feel like th- this is I feel where um the young boy who cries out that the emperor has no clothes um the emperor doesn't want to hear it because he doesn't want to hear that he's been scammed and that he's standing pot-bellied naked. The philosophers don't want to hear it because they're making money in their universities writing books on critical theory and uh, their livelihood is connected to it. The populace doesn't want to hear it because they don't – they they tend to – think of themselves as good humanitarians who think all humans are good and 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 equal of progressing together and and they're in their own social contracts and so it kind of leaves the young man out in the corner still saying the emperor has no clothes but but struggling with now well wait is it is it my problem or is it society's problem and this is where I kind of want to try to overcome that we are that young child saying the Emperor has no clothes there is a world of opposition to not wanting to deal with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, evangelicals are consumed with the opportunity of sharing the gospel you and I know that that's a something that we're both concerned about as uh, as as fathers evangelizing our children as uh, as, as believers in Christ, just wanting to tell people about Christ. But we, we also know that there's an obsession, an obsession within the church about what do we do when the whole world is looking at us going, no, no, no. The emperor does have clothes. He's got them. And, and you just sit in the corner and be quiet. And on one of those issues, the things that that group would say back to us is look at the emperor has no clothes And yes, you can tell the emperor and the populace and the philosophers a few things. You can say to them, don't murder. Like, in in certain forms, you can say to them, don't murder. You you can't say it about the the unborn or the preborn. But you can generally say, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't covet. And yes, in general, you're born to parents. So I guess you live in their house for a while. But what you can't do is you can't say that the emperor has no clothes and that the philosophers who sold him these ideas, who want him to trust in their opinion, you can't say, oh, and by the way, they're lying and, and, God is, 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 and they're accountable to God. And so instead of following along with all of this, let us return to all of the Ten Commandments. Let's not make other gods above ourselves, which is these philosophers or idols or the, the, the Greek pantheon. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's not take the Lord's name in vain. Let's set let, – let's let society – encourage society back to a worship of the true god – uh, regularly. How do we, as this young boy yelling back to this popular group that wants to silence us, how do we navigate this specific conversation about God's law? And, you know, you and I both know that we have had pastors, Bible believing, God fearing men, who have said to us in the last three years, you cannot you cannot coerce people in society to try to follow the first table of the law.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know if I didn't um, end on a
0: question, but I'm halfway through my beer and it's only noon. So maybe, maybe I didn't end in a question. I I made a statement, but please go from there. Well,
1: first of all, I would say that, uh, it's the new god of our society. Um, does murder? Does commit perjury? Uh, does uh, so? Does lie? Does steal? I mean, if you uh, look at um, the uh, the the maid, medical assistance in dying, abortion. Uh, if you look at the destruction of the. But the family, the attempt to redefine um, marriage, that's a lie. Um, if you look at the way people were treated during the last three years, you, you, we, we were buried in lies and deception. Um, so it's interesting how when you abandon the living God who gives us his just law and who is faithful and true to his law, which is an expression of his character um, and his relationship with us, um, and you transfer it for the man God, the, the man God will murder and kill and steal. Um, because the, the, the spirit that is, work, that is at work in the children of disobedience, um, uh, the scripture says the devil is a, is a robber. He's come to lie, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so it's a, really a question of choose you this day whom you will serve. That would be my, my, my first point. In the end, every society uh, has a principle of authority and sovereignty. So where does ultimate authority lie? Who or what is the source of law? What is the ground of our uh, authority? What is the ground of human government, of government in society as a whole? Um, Is it a transcendent source? Is it the living God? Or is it some other source? So you you have a an inescapable principle of sovereignty, and whatever takes that um, identity is your divine per se. So the divinity concept lies wherever ultimate sovereignty is said to rest. So in the modern liberal uh, perspective, the god concept is found within the state itself, and everything in the end must serve must serve it and that god is coercing you michael that god is coercing us um, all of the time L- uh, law by its very nature is not advice it's not merely counsel uh, it carries sanctions that's one of the differences between advice and law is that advice is guidance um, and you may do very well to follow it Law brings with it sanctions um, so that with violation of law, there are penalties. There are things that result. And as as such, law is a teaching device because it then is teaching us values. And it is also disciplining us. So when Christians say, you know, um, you know, well, law, uh, you know, you can't coerce people to follow law. Well, you're being coerced all the time. To follow law, the only question is which law is it that we want to coerce us? Do we want the the, the common good in terms of the law of God, which Jesus summarised as love God and love your neighbour as yourself? There's no other commandment greater than these, the summation of the law. Paul in Romans 13, as he's been talking about civil government, says love is the fulfilment of the law. He lists a number of the the, the, the law is in the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, and he says, love does no wrong to its neighbor because love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you want to love people as a Christian, you need to fulfill God's law with respect to them. That's what loving even our enemies means. It doesn't mean I have to work up in an emotional sense of psychological affection for my uh, enemy. It means I must obey god's law even with respect to them because i am obeying god so law by its very nature involves coercion perhaps that's the appropriate starting point but i'm I'm sure you've got some follow-ups to that um the question is simply you know which law is going to coerce us is it the law of man that will coerce me um uh discipline me teach me because remember, law in the Bible, Torah, means instruction. And that uh, in the English there to be, means to be in structure. God, in creation as a human being, I'm in God's structure. And God's law is teaching me. And in a small number of instances in God's law, it's also going to coerce me to obey with sanctions for the protection and the good of my neighbor and for my own good. So the question becomes, you know, who has the authority to give law now it's a kind of separate question about how we get there but that's the so some of your next question is probably more about that but from the from the point of view of the principle the issue is whose law whose authority is to govern is it god is it the lord jesus christ or is it fallen and sinful man
0: i really like how you Um, have reflected on something we've talked about many times in the past, and that is actually Paul in Romans 13 clarifying what the love of thy neighbor is, which is the fulfillment of the law. Ironically, when you're living in a world where man's law... Is being thrown at you. You know, we talked about the difference between an, an advisement. You know, public health advising you not to do this versus living in a world where public health is mandating you to do something, and there's and there's there's uh, penal consequences that, that come with that. Um, people the, people will use slogans like the we, we've seen the, the slogan of "Love Thy Neighbor" out in California used by the Democratic Party or Democrats to to actually do the opposite of what God's law is. So anyone can say love thy neighbor, but a true understanding of the love thy neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And so I appreciate you linking that because of course everything has to have definition and and all laws do coerce. I think where I'm where where I want to ask you next, Joe, is not how do we get there, because I think I think actually that moves too quickly because I think how we get there is, is within the Lord's will to a certain degree. Well, not to a certain degree, it is within the Lord's will. And we tend to way overemphasize strategy about how we get there, but more to the more to the question of the honest intellect, more to the question of the the Christian who they've come for this journey with us. They're talking to us. They're listening to, um, this understanding of scripture and how it applies, how how to go out and warn the rulers and and the warn the rulers about their false doctrines and how it is applied both politically and in the sphere of medicine and everywhere. But that person is going to have to sit down with an opposition that's going to say, so you really think we should write into Canadian law the first commandment? you th- you really think we're we should write into british law the second commandment now not only strategically is that going to be hard to get muslims to represent to vote for a representative government that is that, that that this is what you're going to say this is what we represent which by the way brings this whole conversation full circle about representative government where the the the, the weaker the church is in declaring all of these things the more pagans vote for their own representatives and make this entire task more difficult when we're actually not out evangelizing because we don't think we have anything for society we only think we have things for anybody who will enter into our little church door but that aside how do we how do we answer the individual who says so, Joe, are, are you telling me that a part of Canadian law is you should have no other idols but me? Are you telling me that the, for the Lord's Day should be set aside in Canadian law as a day of worship and rest for the country? And you and I both know you've been asked this question directly before. You know, isn't that coercive? Isn't that trying to Christianize Canada Try to answer that specific question for our listeners that they're going to have to, I've had that question asked to me just this week. Uh, Try to answer that question for, for our listeners.
1: Well, first of all, it, I would say that um, we, in the current order, as I've articulated, we do have um, a God and there is in increasingly in Canadian law and in, um western law a requirement that we don't have any other gods before the state if the last three years taught us anything it taught us that there can be no god above and beyond the state no matter what christ commands about gathering or praying for the sick or administering the sacraments or baptizing or exercising church discipline or declaring the gospel the state is to be recognized as god there shall be no other gods before the state and if you uh, the state may deign to give you a license like the early church could say caesar is lord put their incense on the altar and get a license from the state to go and worship jesus oh sure we can have that when the state says it's okay but it was crystal clear that the state is to be uh there is no other god before above the state Even though the preamble to the Charter, Michael, which, as you know, is not a document that I think has done us any great favors because we didn't need it. Um, But the this preamble to the Canadian Charter, does it not constitutionalize effectively that very first commandment, the supremacy of God and the rule of law? Right. That God is above all. Um, You will have no other gods before me. That was the coronation oath of Queen Elizabeth and of the kings and queens of our political history and heritage um, to serve King Jesus, that the the word of God is the law for all princes. The, 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 The orb with the cross on it symbolized Christ and his empire over the whole earth, the scepter, his authority. So our constitutional history recognized the first commandment. Now, I would say that is instituted today. It's just a different God. I would say the same about the second commandment. You shall not have, you shall not make for yourself um, uh, an idol or an image, of course, concerns for, for, for believers not taking any representation and uh, worshipping it. Um, uh, and the state, of course, is saying to uh, the modern liberal state is saying that, look, um you you cannot usurp um the role of the state you will not have something that um uh, falsely represents or stands in the way uh of between you and the state so in fact i would say of course that from a christian standpoint the state is the idolater par excellence because as it tries to remake the image of god in man it's making an idol so the state it has its own laws against idolatry of having any uh, worship of anything before itself instead of itself ultimately um and it practices its own idolatry um you shall not misuse the name of the lord your god well let me remind our listeners as well michael that blasphemy laws in the west only came off our books very very recently Christian blasphemy laws. It's in the last 20 years that Britain, the United Kingdom, dispensed with blasphemy laws uh, that were basic to our Christian constitution. Why are blasphemy laws important? Because they're taking the name of the ultimate sovereign, the ultimate source of authority in vain. Now, if you allow the name of the ultimate source of authority, the ultimate sovereign to be abused, to be trampled underfoot, to be insulted, um, to be treated as dirt, then how can that society survive? It's essentially a a form of uh, um, treason law, really, um, that if you misuse, if you take in vain the name of God, who is the ruler of that society, is the Lord of that society, then you are subverting that society. Your goal is the destruction of that society. If you can depict Christ hanging on the cross as some minister in England recently did, some chaplain, as transgendered, and you allow blasphemy and you uh, promote it, what does that do to the name of Christ, honor for Christ, who is Lord within that society? So there were blasphemy laws till very, very recently, the last 20 years in the West that restrained Blasphemy against the one who we believed was the ultimate sovereign, the ultimate Lord of our society. But as we have changed gods, blasphemy laws have changed. So what do we have now, Michael? We have hate speech tribunals. We have human uh, We have hate speech codes that are the modern blasphemy laws that the state is going to enforce. You cannot say this. You cannot say that. You must use this language. You must use these pronouns. You must put it this way. If you don't, we saw it in British Columbia with that father. Uh, If he misgendered his own child, he was subject to criminal penalties. So the hate speech laws and the uh, the the hate legislation is indicative of the change of gods, is that we now have a new God and we will not take, we must not take the name of that God and his ideology in vain. And then the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. I don't need to remind you that the Lord's Day Act wasn't abolished in Canada until the 1980s. And most of those Lord's Day Acts in, in the West that protected a day of rest for people were abolished in the same decade in the Anglosphere. You saw them topple. So I was, I was a teenager when um, the Lord's Day Act, a day of rest and Sunday trading was set aside. Now, when, when those laws were introduced into the West, um, Sabbath rest, they were welcomed as liberation from servitude, from, uh, so that an employer could not force you to work seven days a week could not oblige you to to, to work when you wanted to worship God in his house. So the the, the, the debates in Canada are very interesting to read. The founding debates, you can read them. They are published around the Lord's Day Act. And the, the senators, both liberal and conservative senators in Canada, argued on the basis of the first table of the law. They basically said, look, we enforce... God's law, which says you shall not murder or you shall not commit perjury. Why do we not enforce? They they argued, the politicians argued, the fourth commandment, which enjoins us to recognize the first table of the law, the Sabbath day. And they said, if we don't do this, we will go down as a nation. If we, uh, if we abolish God's law in the nation, we will go down as a nation for doing so. I put it to you, they were right. And that wasn't abolished even until the 1980s so the reality is is that the last hundred years or so and especially the last 70 have been a constant interaction with biblical law with god's law in the west we have been steadily repealing it now the reason we're seeing that is that we are no longer a christian people we are we are an increasingly pagan people secularism is a form of paganism We are de-Christianizing. We have changed gods. When you change gods, you will see two major changes. You'll see major change in the law, and you'll see major change in education, because education is the means by which you pass down that heritage, and law is the teaching device which sets the standards and moral standard of your God. So as we have abandoned the Christian faith, it is logical that we've seen this repealing of God's law and the radical introduction of humanistic pagan law. God's law is for a Christian people, not a pagan people. So it is not um, something that was within our power as Christians to impose God's law on an unwilling society. We had Christian laws in Christian lands because we covenanted with God. The Solemn League and Covenant taken by the English a parliament, a similar covenant taken in Scotland. Our constitutions, our oaths of office, all represented our submission to God. In the United States, the Moses carved into the walls of the Supreme Court. In Britain, our crown courts, which displayed, hung on the walls were the Ten Commandments. It was the royal law. It was the law for the government of the people. In fact, when the Americans say, this government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He's borrowing that from Tyndale's uh, uh, statement, I think Wycliffe's statement, I should say, um, concerning the Bible, which is of, uh, for the government of the people. That's where they draw the expression from. And so um, when you surrender that history and you surrender God's, you will see a change in the law. So the only way to see a recovery Of righteous law is for us to be again um, a righteous people and um, that means evangelism but also evangelization and evangelization includes education and engagement in culture where we are seeking to change again the plausibility structure in which people live in other words the teaching device that surrounds them so, if we allow, for example, and support the radical changes in the redefinition of family and marriage, then we are teaching people something radically different about God. If we allow radical change, we don't oppose radical change as a church in our understanding of human identity with human beings as God's image bearer, then we are making a false image of God and we're making an idol and we're supporting idolatry. So, the obligation of the Christian in a non-Christian in a paganizing land is to proclaim Christ is to is to hold up the truth of his word the goodness and the blessing of his law and to prophetically witness for change and wherever we are in in culture if we're butchers bakers candlestick makers if we are magistrates jurists lawyers judges politicians We serve the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and we propose, not impose, because we're not dictators. We propose God's word and his law for the good of our neighbor, for love of neighbor. And as we again as a people in time, and we will because of the goodness and the providence of God and the power of God, as we return to the faith, we don't know whether it's going to be decades or centuries, but as we return to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will again see people covenant with God, and we will see Christian law blessing the people and the nations again. That's the that's the future.
0: So, what I want to hear, what what I want my listeners to hear from this are, are two or three really key points. And Joe, I, I thank you for bringing all that together there. Uh, the the first point I want people to hear is. Uh, You've heard now how this statism, this, let's say, um, man-centered government, this elitism, this authoritarianism ruled in men, you've heard that that's going to – how that's going to affect every citizen. And I think very many people, when they think about this coercion question, um, I like the way that you talked about propose versus impose – they think, oh well, wouldn't that be mean to the Muslims, or wouldn't that be mean to the Hindus to to proclaim to them that there is one God? You should have no other gods before Him. You are not to take His name in vain. You not, uh, you're not. Uh, you're 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 to have a Sabbath. Oh wait, and all of a sudden you realize, wow, this is a gospel opportunity. So when we negate all of this to the realm of these human leaders. And we say, no, no, they have authority. Government is not an area that we discuss. What you're really doing is you're just removing the gospel witness from that context. And, and in some type of sentimentalism, you're actually undermining an ability to have people saved because the Muslim and the Hindu and the New Ager, the, the existentialist, will still sit under the same coercive fist that you sit. You've, you've not liberated them governmentally in order you've, – you've not said, oh, look, uh, I understand you're not going to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But here have a better form of government. You've actually damned them to both. An oppressive government because it is an oppressive false god. And you've damned them to that because you're not preaching the gospel in this particular context. And I want everybody to hear that very clearly because, you know, when I think of in the church, when we think of all of these things in the church, of course, if, um, of course, if an atheist came into my church, I would tell him not to have another God that is but man. So why wouldn't I say this out in the public sphere when we're, when we're talking about the context of politics? Joe, the, the second thing I want people to understand is that um, this is a matter of apostasy. You talked about this. You, oh man, it clarified for me when you you articulated. You said blasphemy laws, and you re you redefined it a little bit when you said um, they're actually um, what's the word when we sin against the state.
1: Treason.
0: Uh, treason laws. Okay, so you, redi- re- you you redefine it to treason. But if you put it way back into the original context that we were talking about, treason laws and blasphemy laws are in line with the idea of a heresy law. A, 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 a blasphemy law is in place – in order to encourage people to tread lightly when they're thinking about heretical thoughts, going their own way, and running away from God. And it's there so that their influence is limited from leading a people into heresy, which is to lead them astray. And some more, the, the more that this dualism reigns in the Christian mind, where the Christian mind goes, Oh, well, you know, I've just got this little area that I believe about Jesus. It actually leads them right into heresy because they join with the state in promoting that heresy. This is really diabolical stuff. This is really black and white stuff that we're getting into. Thirdly, I just want our listeners... I, I, I want to wrap up, Joe. So I want to give you the lad, last opportunity here. Thirdly, I want our listeners to hear about where they can be trained in more of this thinking because I, you and I both will be teaching at the Runner Academy uh, this coming May. Uh, you've, the Ezra Institute has lots of different teaching venues. Joe, can you tell our listeners where they should be listening to this type of dialogue outside of uh, outside of my podcast and outside of your podcast? Where can they get uh, information from the Ezra Institute.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks, Michael. And uh, appreciate the, the the summing up there. Um, it comes down to a question, doesn't it, in the end of who do we really believe? Do we really believe that Jesus Christ is our? creator and our redeemer is reconciling all things to himself all 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 of life the totality of life all of culture all the nations that he's commissioned us to disciple nations and that that is good for all and it's love of neighbor that it's good for the muslim you know if you go to saudi arabia or indonesia or pakistan you're not going to be allowed to build a church uh uh, you're not going to be able to display the cross in saudi arabia uh, in much of the middle east um because another God reigns there and it, it's a totalitarian conception of the state. But we believe that um, we can offer the Muslim in our own lands, the love of Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ Christ as good for them and not the, the prison and tyranny of Sharia. And so it really does come down to that for us as Christians. And we, the only way to make progress is for us as God's people in the church, as you've pointed out to move away from our apostasy and our abandonment of his word and then have a new reformation in the life of the church which recognizes the authority of christ's word and the the authority of his law that is good for us for men and nations as far as the resources are concerned um the uh, the ezra institute has a podcast called the podcast for cultural reformation that's available wherever you get your podcast so that's a resource. We're actually in the middle of a series right now, Michael, on the Ten Commandments, as you mentioned. So people might enjoy that and subscribe to our podcast. Um, We have a journal called Jubilee, which comes out three times a year that they can subscribe to. Uh, We um, have a publishing house called Ezra Press, where there are all kinds of books and uh, resources. We have a a learning portal uh, launching shortly next month, which um, they'll be able to subscribe to soon. And then critically, we provide these in-person, multi-day training opportunities. And uh, thank you for mentioning that because we have some very important ones coming up. We've got in May, May 7th to 17th, we have the H7 Runner International Academy for Cultural Leadership. That's our premiere program. It's 10 days. It's happening in Georgia this year. Um we are uh, really excited about it. We really want people to join us. We actually have uh, 10 bursaries available. Uh, if you're thinking, yes, I'd really love to be at that, I'd love to get equipped on this, but uh, the money's tight, you can apply for a bursary. So that's happening. Our North American Runner Academy is happening in uh, May, May 7th, to 17th. And then we're also running for teens, Worldview Leadership Academies, both in uh, the States, in Virginia, and uh, in Ontario, um, in Southern Ontario uh, this year. And all of the information about those programs can be found on our website, Ezrainstitute.com. Ezrainstitute.com.
0: Everybody, thank you for listening. And we are talking about coming face to face with a naked emperor and, and our response to that. Joe, we're thankful for your faithfulness to the scriptures. And also your interaction with the contemporary writers. We really appreciate your distilled efforts, how you just take thoughts and distill them down and and explain them for people. So very much appreciate you and the Ezra Institute. Everybody, thank you for listening. Make sure you share this video across your social media feed. Of course, you can subscribe to my podcast wherever you get podcasts. Uh, that is open mic with Michael Tsen and, and Tim and I shoot another podcast called the other club. We want you to get this information out, help your other Christians think about these things. And even your non-Christian friends think about how the Lord Jesus Christ could transform their lives. Joe is holding up ruler of Kings. Uh, it's a, a, a bigger version of, uh, some of the study notes that I was taking today. And hopefully we'll see you at the runner Academy, uh, Joe's going to be there. Andrew Salin's going to be there. I'm going to be there. There's a number of other great speakers from the Ezra hey, Institute. Dwight. We really want to fill these uh, training times. It, it's, it, it's vitally important that we re-educate ourselves and how to navigate these changing waters. Thanks so much for listening and Godspeed.